We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we are discussing Ged from Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, A Wizard of Earthsea. To help us in our discussion, we are joined by returning all-star Kirsta Christensen. Hello! Welcome! So glad to have you back for, I don't know how many times at this point, many. It's impossible to count. It really in is. In Watership Down, it no would be one. infinity. <laughs> one, two, no three, four, infinity. Count. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well played. So I have uh, exciting news that actually you guys already know, but I want to share it with the podcasters. So two things. I was recently in Chicago, and I stayed at the um, Hilton Chicago, which, as it turns out, is the filming location for many classic films, including The Fugitive. Yes, which you were a guest on, our discussion of The Fugitive. Yes, so uh, my last day there, I ran up to the Grand Ballroom to see if I could accuse someone of murder, if there was like an evil conference going on there, but they were just setting up for a statistics conference and no one looked evil, so I didn't accuse anyone. Ah, okay. Next time. That is a missed opportunity. So, do you think that has happened there since that film was released? <laughs> has a comp, not not like legitimately, but has right. someone as a joke run in and accuse someone of murder in that room? Oh, as as a joke? Yeah. yeah. Do you mean like during an actual legitimate conference, somebody runs in <laughs> and yells out like a streaker? Yeah. But they just <laughs> wow. Well, if they did it naked, that would really be something. <laughs> that would be a, a liberty that, that departs from the film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, certainly amongst a group of friends, it has to have happened. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Especially if they were cardiologists. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Second very important piece of news. The other day, I was talking to a coworker at her desk um, in the library, and I don't normally hang out at her desk, and so we had this, like, lovely conversation. There was also a student worker there, and a few minutes into the conversation, the student worker said... To me, your voice sounds familiar. Are you on the protagonist podcast? Way to go! I was recognized in the wild, and Joe is sad that he has not been recognized in the wild. Never been noted in the wild, yeah. Right. Todd, you you were at a conference. You were recognized. Yeah, at a conference. I was not accused of murder, but I was recognized for the podcast. So, shout out to, I believe her name is Rebecca from the fourth floor. I may just need to, like, randomly walk up to the fourth floor. You could. I'm thinking I might. Todd, you and I go walk by having a loud conversation. (laughs) Yes, fantastic. Kirsten, did you recommend that we do this novel? I don't remember. Did I? I Is this your doing? It's your doing. I put on the schedule Ursula K. Le Guin novel. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I think Kirsten put Wizard of Earthsea. Okay. The reason being, and this is kind of the how we came to this, I guess, so we're jumping a little bit, but... I know I need to read Ursula K. Le Guin, and because of this podcast, I rarely read outside of what I'm teaching or what we're about to do on this podcast. So I just put it in there because she's so renowned, and I somehow I had never read any of her writing, and so I wanted to make sure I got to it. So I never had either. 
So awesome. This is good. And we'll get to some of her renown in the trivia. She is renowned. She's Very. good. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Wizard of Earthsea was published in 1968. It tells the story of a young boy who goes to a wizarding school, but his arrogance releases an evil force that comes to define his life. Oh man, this story is really good. I'm just going to say right now, this is a really, really, really good story. And if you haven't read it and you like fantasy... Stop listening and stop listening read it. Stop listening and go read it, because it's really good. It's yeah. fantastic. It's kind of foundational for establishing archetypes that we see everywhere now. Mm-hmm. I yep. think, I, I, I'm sure some of these were there before, but like I read this and I was like, oh, hello, Harry Potter. Hello, Kvothe from Name of the Wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminded me of Dune in that way. Like, mm-hmm. when you read Dune, you're like, nothing is original. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is the most amazing thing I've read, and I can't believe what hacks everybody else's that came after this. Yeah. This kind of feels like that. It's just really, One of those really books good. where you're like, well, it's all going to be downhill from here yeah. because I've, <laughs> I've read the best thing finally. <laughs> it's really good. So how we came to it, uh, I put Ursula K. Le Guin's name onto our schedule and then Kirsten Christensen said you should do A Wizard of Mercy. Mm-hmm. What about you, Todd? How'd you come to it? She hasn't been at the, like, at the very top of my list of like, oh, I have to read this, but she's always been like lurking in the... <laughs> In the background of things like when I'm in a bookstore, I'll, I'll see her novels and think, those look really good. I've heard that she's really good, but I didn't really know much about her. Um, but uh, shame on me, because <laughs> I don't know how I missed this. So I actually read the second one. There's a there's a series. I actually read the second book first, because we had a copy of it that was like a library discard or something. I just remember this kind of like ratty paperback. Um and Ged does appear in the second one, but as kind of a supporting character. And so it's not a huge spoiler to actually read the second one first. I read the second one, and then at some point, I think my mom suggested I read the first one. <laughs> um, and I don't remember if we had the first one or not, but yeah. So I, I just read it a really long time ago and have reread it many times. I'm just like, man, this is really good every time I read it. So. All right. Uh, some trivia about uh, this novel and the writer. And some of this, I found some of this Kier stuff provided, uh, just plugged it into our document for us. But Ursula K. Le Guin, she's pretty amazing. In 2016, the New York Times called her America's greatest living science fiction writer. Full stop. Yes. Though I did see that she also <laughs> said she would prefer to just be called an American novelist, not an American science fiction writer. Uh, she has won the Hugo Award, Nebula Award, Locus Award, and World Fantasy Award, all of which are like genre-specific awards, but very prestigious. Oh, and she's won every single one of those more than once mm-hmm. um, in her career. And in 2000, the Library of Congress named her a, quote, living legend. Didn't know that was a thing that the Library of Congress does <laughs> really? on certain authors, but apparently... New bucket list, right? Yes, wow. exactly. To do, I would like to be named by the U.S. Library of Congress a living legend. That's amazing. Uh, it gets better, though, uh, because one of her other titles, the Science Fiction what? and Fantasy Writers of America, named one Grandmaster of Science Fiction every year, and she was awarded the title in 2003. So not only is she an official living legend, she is a Grandmaster. Wow. Also, to-do list. Right. <laughs> uh, she's written many fantasy and science fiction novels, but she's also published poetry, essays, and short stories. And in 2017, we now, as like audiences and consumers of entertainment, we are very used to coming-of-age stories about young wizards or magicians, such as the works of Diana Wynne-Jones, J.K. Rowling, and Patrick Rothfuss. However, when A Wizard of Earthsea was published, most wizards in fiction were characters like Merlin or Gandalf, mysterious old men with long white beards, and Le Guin wanted to write a story about a wizard who was young. And... I think she tapped into something yes. that could prove popular right. with that move. Just, I see this element of the genre. I'm going to do it a little different. And oh, look yeah. at that. 
Yeah, and sometimes when you're when you know when when something was written before you were even born, and you're so used to the stuff that came after, it's really important to say like, no, no, this was new at the time. This was like, you know, because it can look when this. I mean, this book is wonderful and holds up well anyway. But the fact that like she was kind of the first person to sort of say like, what if we wrote about this? You know, a child going to wizarding school. Right. Right. Maybe even a prodigy child going to wizarding school. <laughs> no, no. I want the book about the average child that goes to wizarding wait, wait, school. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe a prodigy child from humble upbringings and he meets a snooty rich child at a school and they hate each other. <laughs> One thing maybe, that I thought was maybe. interesting about this is, like, when we talked about The Giver, there was this sort of uh, this feeling like The Giver's a good book. I mean, it's a really good book. It's a foundational dystopian text. Right. But as you read it, there's this feeling like, I don't know if it's as good as maybe some of the stuff that came after. Like, they yeah. stood on the shoulders of giants and created maybe something better. But I didn't feel like that with this. Like, yeah. Yeah. like oh, this is good, but Harry Potter's way better. Yeah. Like, this is just a fantastic novel <laughs> all by itself. Full stop. Yeah. <laughs> no need to, to like, uh, yeah, like, I feel like we had an asterisk in our discussion of The Giver that I don't need, we, we yeah. don't need for this one. And that is always tricky when someone, like, when a bunch of people super, super recommend something to you, because at some point you kind of want to be like, stop, you're getting my expectations yeah. too high, you mm-hmm. know, let me go into it with a more moderate expectation so I'm not yeah. disappointed, but... Alright, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin also bucked tradition, and again, this this was published in 1968, Eight. was it? Mm-hmm. Uh, she had most of her main characters be non-white, they were all characters of color. Uh, Ged is described as copper brown, and his friend Vetch is black. Most of the other characters in the book are also people of color, although the Karkish raiders who attack Ged's village are white, as is the duplicitous Lady Serret. Spoiler warning on those. <laughs> uh, however, Le Guin had little control over the marketing of her books early on, and many of the editions of her book feature a white man on the cover. And I'll just jump over to another bit of trivia. There are not many adaptations of this work. Um, notably, in the 1980s, uh, Hayao Miyazaki asked for permission to adapt A Wizard of Earthsea, but she was unfamiliar with his work and refused. Uh. And then she saw my neighbor Totoro and said, wait, this guy's got something. <laughs> uh, and she regretted that her earlier decision, and she gave permission. Uh, and in 2006, Tales of Earthsea was directed by Miyazaki's son. And while Le Guin liked the visual aesthetic, she was unhappy with some changes that she felt altered the themes of her work. So she actually wasn't very pleased with that. Um, and two years earlier, in 2004, the Sci-Fi Channel had adapted the first two books in the Earthsea uh, series, but Le Guin was very critical of that adaptation. She does not like it all. Particularly, it cast mostly white actors in the main roles, yeah. uh, and that uh, was not pleasing for her. She said she, said she had no creative control over, over that adaptation. So are there any good adaptations of this? Apparently not. From the trivia that I've like looking online, <laughs> No. Yeah, it's because because I was you know I was finishing it and looking for trivia and stuff and I was like wow someone should adapt this into a movie this would be really good or like animation or something I was like why has no one ever done that and like no they have done it multiple times it's just been bad, bad. every time and so yeah. we forget about it. And we've noted, uh, Kisha, you've read the second. There are actually uh, four sequels to this novel, so it's a series of five novels. And for a long time, it's worth noting. It was a trilogy for a long time, and then there was like twenty years between the mm-hmm. the third book and the the fourth and fifth were both released in two thousand one. Right. Uh, so the other ones were, hmm. I think, late seventies. Uh, the trilogy was was done. I think so. So uh, that is our trivia on Ursula K. Le Guin. If you have not read any of her work. I'd recommend getting into it. This is a great one, but I've only heard praise for her science fiction particularly. Did you read the, um, in your, your, your edition of the book has the... The afterword? The afterword by her. I did not did read, read this. No. Yeah. So she says that, um, I mean, she was already a well-established writer and a publisher came to her and said, we would like you to write a book for teens. And she was like, 
What? <laughs> a young adult audience. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but she said she never had considered writing for a specific audience like that. Like, mm-hmm. she just wrote to write. And then she thought, you know, maybe, like, you know, maybe I could do this. So the first, you'll appreciate this. The first thing she did was she got out a big poster board and she drew the map oh, with all the islands and everything. I love maps. And then, and then that was like her starting point was mm-hmm. the map. And then she kind of like I see, I, that, we haven't done the summary really yet, but it's it's set in a world that is all islands, all right. islands. Yeah, looks like the Aegean Sea kind of. It's yeah. very yeah. Uh, anyway, um, very cool. Well, and and in modern publishing. The the genres are very kind of strict, like young adult and middle grade, and you know, and to the point where the age of the protagonist is very closely tied mm-hmm. to the to the audience that you're going to. Like, I don't think they would publish Ender's Game again, the book about a five year old that is not for five year olds. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's so it's kind of interesting to look back and see, like, when some of those genres were not quite as well defined, what were people doing? You know, how how are they kind of like envisioning writing for an audience for that audience, or did they just write whatever they wanted to it, and it became very popular with kids? Cool. Anyway, I thought that was cool. Uh, before we get to the full synopsis, we just want to remind you that we provide you every month with over four hours of content. And if that's worth a quarter per hour to you, we invite you to go to pro- patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now, without further ado, we cede the floor to Kirsta (laughs) for a long synopsis. Okay. This is the story of Ged, a celebrated wizard and archmage whose great deeds are sung in many songs. However, this story takes place before he gained fame. Ged was born in a poor village on Gaunt, one of the islands in the Earthsea archipelago. As a child, he's called Dooney, and he's a goat herd. One day, he hears his aunt say a rhyme to make a goat jump down from the roof of a hut. Dooney later tries it out on his, on his own goats and finds that they all come to him. However, he can't figure out how to make them stop following him, and he runs back to the village in distress, <laughs> closely followed by the goats. His aunt says a word to free the goats from the spell. She realizes that Dooney must have strong innate magical powers and decides to teach him what she knows. Dooney takes pleasure in the power he has over animals, and the other children often see him with a bird of prey, so they give him the nickname Sparrowhawk. One day, the island is invaded by men from the Karged Empire. Many other villages are lost, but when the Kargs come to Dooney's village, he is clever enough to use a weather spell to create a fog to hide the villagers so that they can attack the Kargs without warning. His quick thinking saves the village, but he overspends his magical power and is left unresponsive. A wizard... Ogion? Mm-hmm. A wizard, Ogion, who lives elsewhere on the island, hears the story and comes to heal Dooney. He then offers to give him his true name at his rite of passage into manhood and to take him on as an apprentice. The wizard gives him his true name, Ged. However, knowing a person's true name can give someone power over them, so Ged adopts his childhood nickname, Sparrowhawk, as his name for common use. Little note here. Um, so the book calls him Ged. We're going to call him Ged in the summary, but virtually every person who talks to him under most circumstances calls him Sparrowhawk, and that's going to become important because there are times when his true name will be mentioned, so I kind of need to make By that distinction. Yeah. Right. Ged follows Ogion to Rialbi. He expects that being the apprentice of a great mage will be full of excitement, but instead finds his life rather dull. Ogion speaks very little and doesn't bother to do even the most basic magic, such as protecting himself and Ged from the rain when they are traveling. Ged studies books of magical runes and spends time outdoors gathering herbs, but sees no marvels or enchantments. Ged meets the daughter of the old lord of Rialbi. She asks him about sorcery and dares him to perform some great magic, such as summoning the spirits of the dead or changing himself into an animal. He tries to put her off, and she says he probably can't do it because he's too young. 
This wounds his pride, so he goes back to Ogion's house while Ogion is out, and opens an advanced book of magic. As he reads a spell, he feels a horror come over him, and he sees a shapeless shadow crouching in the darkness. Ogion returns and speaks a word that dispels the darkness in the shadow, then chastises Ged for looking in the forbidden book. Ged explains why he was looking for an advanced spell, and Ogion tells Ged that the old lord's wife is an enchantress, and she may have sent her daughter to manipulate Ged for her own ends. Ged complains that he isn't learning anything from Ogion, who responds that Ged is extremely powerful, but Ogion has what Ged lacks, which is humility and wisdom. However, since Ged is not happy in Rialbi, Ogion offers to send him to learn the high magical arts at the school on the island of Roke. Ged arrives at the school and meets an older student named Jasper. Jasper comes from a wealthy noble family and looks down on Ged because of his background and manners. Ged meets another student named Vetch, who's from the Isles of the East Reach. Vetch and Gas Jasper are friends, but Vetch is kinder than Jasper, and he becomes friends with Ged as well. Ged begins his studies at the school on Roke. He's very talented at illusion, but he's frustrated that, the mag that this magical art does not change the substance of an object. His schoolmaster tells him that true changing and summoning can dangerously alter the balance of the world. He advises Ged to be content with mere illusion. Ged spends a season studying names in the Isolate Tower. There, the master namer has the students memorize long lists of names of everything in the world, as well as learning of ways to discover the true names of things and people. At the Festival of Sun Return, the Lord and Lady of O are special guests of the school. Jasper works an illusion charm for the young and beautiful Lady of O, making a white tree appear to grow up from the stone floor. Each twig of the tree bears a golden apple, which turns into a crystal seed and falls like the sound of rain. Everyone is pleased with the illusion except for Ged, who is envious of Jasper and bitterly tells himself he could have done better. Ged progresses in his studies and begins to learn changing. He's very talented at this art, and the master of this subject begins tutoring him individually, as well as giving him advanced books to study, perhaps unwisely. Ged, Jasper, Vetch, and some other boys are having fun when, ja when Jasper taunts Ged for being younger and not as advanced in his studies. Ged responds that his power is equal to Jasper's, so Jasper challenges Ged to summon a spirit from the dead. Vetch tries to break up the duel, but Ged says he will call Elfaran, a lady from the tale The Deed of Enlad. Ged recites the spell and makes the appropriate motions, then calls Elfaran. The spirit of a woman appears in an oval of light, but then the oval rips open, and through the breach climbs a formless shadow which leaps at Ged's face and attacks him. The archmage Nemeral, head of the school, appears. He heals the breach and touches Ged with his staff. The shadow disappears, and Ged is alive but seriously wounded. As Ged lies in the healing chamber, Nemeral also lies with the other mages around him. The archmage has spent his power to save Ged and is dying, but as a mage he's able to walk into the land of the dead with open eyes. Ged spends months being nursed back to health in the healing chamber, and when he returns to his studies, his face is scarred and he struggles with even basic illusions or charms. The new archmage tells Ged that he used his magical powers without thinking of the effects, and in so doing called up a shadow from a place where there are no names. Vetch has earned his wizard staff, and he stops to see Ged before he leaves Roke, telling Ged to come visit him in the East Reach. Before he leaves, Vetch tells Ged his true name, a sign of deep friendship and trust. Ged tells Vetch his true name in turn. Wizards trained on Roke typically serve great cities or castles, but Ged accepts a position as the Mage of Low Torning, a small fishing village in the Ninety Isles archipelago. The men of Low Torning need a wizard to guard against the dragon of Pendor, who lives nearby and has recently spawned eight young dragons. When Ged arrives, he finds the house they have prepared for him is humble, but it is better than the one he grew up in, and he thanks them for it. Ged becomes friends with a boatmaker named Petchvery. When Petchvery's child becomes sick, he pleads with Ged to heal the child. Ged holds the child and says a spell, then it seems as if he is running after the child on a dark hill. Too late, he realizes he has followed the child into the spirit realm, and when he turns to come back to the land of the living, he sees a shadow waiting for him. The child dies, and Ged realizes that by crossing the boundary between life and death, he has allowed the shadow to find him once again. An evil power like this shadow can take over a man, turning him into a creature called a Gebeth. 
If, if it possessed Ged, it would have access to his magical powers and would be extremely dangerous. The shadow is now tracking him, and if he stays in Lotorning, he will put others in danger. He decides to confront the dragon of Pendor before he leaves Lotorning for good. When Ged arrives on Pendor, the old dragon comes out to fight him, but it is much stronger and more powerful than he is. However, Ged has guessed the dragon's name because he read of a similar dragon in an old tale and suspected that it was the same. The dragon offers to tell him the name of his shadow, but Ged refuses and instead makes a bargain for the perpetual safety of the inhabitants of the Ninety Isles from the dragon and its offspring. Ged decides to head to Roke, where the mages may be able to help him. However, when he boards a ship bound for Roke, a mysterious wind appears and blows the ship off course. Ged realizes that it is the Roke wind, an enchanted wind that keeps evil powers from approaching Roke. With a heavy heart, Ged asks the captain to drop him off on a different island, since he cannot return to Roke. A stranger advises Ged to head to the court of the Terranon on Oskil, where their magic may be able to help him. On the way there, he meets an unpleasant man named Skyor. When they land, it turns out that Skyor is also headed towards the court of the Terranon, and he offers to show Ged the way, although Ged would rather not travel with him. While they walk there, Skyor's voice changes to become hoarse and beast-like, and he turns his face away from Ged. Ged calls his name, and Skyor turns to face him, but there is no face beneath the hood. Skyor has been turned into a Gebeth by Ged's shadow, and before Ged can say a spell, the Gebeth says Ged, his true name, rendering his magic powerless by the utterance. Ged runs away from the shadow, falls, and loses consciousness. Ged wakes up in an unfamiliar bed in a luxurious room. A woman greets him and introduces herself as Seret, the lady of the court of the Terranon, on the island of Oskil. Seret tells him that here he is safe from the shadow that pursues him. This appears to be true, but Ged finds that his mind is clouded in Seret's tower, and he is always cold in spite of his fur clothing and the tower's marble fireplaces. One day he asks Seret what the Terranon is, knowing that the lords of Oskil have famous treasures. She takes him to a small empty room at the base of the tower. The floor is covered in rough, indistinguishable paving stones, but Ged can feel that one stone is a source of power in which an old and terrible spirit is imprisoned. Seret encourages him to touch the stone and ask it a question, such as how to defeat the shadow, but Ged refuses, saying that the spirit is evil. Ged realizes that the Lord and Lady have set a trap for him because they want him to become the slave of the Terranon. Ged runs from the tower, pursued by creatures sent by the Lord of the Terranon. He turns into a hawk and flies away over the sea where the creatures cannot follow. Ged flies back to Rialbi to find Ogion. Ged appears to be a wild hawk, but Ogion recognizes him and calls him by his true name to restore him to his human form. Even so, it takes Ged days for Ged to come back to his full humanity. Ged tells Ogion all that has happened since he left Rialbi, and his despair at being unable to defeat the creature since it has no name. Ogion assures Ged that all creatures have a name, and wonder how the shadow knew Ged's true name. Ogion advises Ged that he has been hunted by the shadow for too long. If he wants to gain the upper hand, he must now become the hunter instead. Ged senses that it would be safer to meet the shadow again on sea instead of on land. He obtains a ship and sails away from Gaunt. He meets his shadow once on the water, but it tricks him into wrecking his boat on another island. He repairs his boat and sets sail again. Once again, he meets the shadow on his boat. This time he lunges for it, but it has no substance and he cannot grasp it. Ged decides to head east, beyond any known island in the archipelago, to meet his shadow once again. He stops at Ifish, one of the islands of the East Reach. He meets an innkeeper who is friendly, but warns him that there is already a wizard living in town, so they do not need another. However, it turns out that the other wizard is Vetch, Ged's old friend, who is happy to see him. Ged tells Vetch of his quest to defeat his shadow, and Vetch offers to sail with him. Ged and Vetch sail east. Ged seems to know the way he must go, but he doesn't know if he will defeat his shadow or die trying. They sail for days and finally reach a place where the ocean seems to be both water and land. Ged steps out of the boat and walks on the water to confront his shadow. He sees his shadow and approaches it. And at this point, I'm just going to read from the book um, because I can't say it better than Ursula K. Le Guin does. Aloud and clearly, breaking that old silence, Ged spoke the shadow's name, and in the same moment the shadow spoke without lips or tongue, saying the same word, Ged and the two voices were one voice. 
Ged reached out his hands, dropping his staff, and took hold of his shadow of the black self that reached out to him. Light and darkness met and joined, and were one. Vetch is unsure if Ged has defeated his shadow, or has instead been possessed by it, but Ged returns to the ship and tells him, Look, it is done. It is over. The wound is healed. Vetch and Ged sail back home to Ifish. Well done. Great summary, Kirsta. Thank you. You're welcome. So, where do we go from here? So, if you were going to try and... Uh, I, I mean, we talked about how this is kind of before genres were really codified in the way they are now. So now, like, if you pick up a young adult coming of an age no- novel that's fantasy, you kind of know what you're going to get in a lot of ways. What I think there's still even more than just those labels that could be applied to mm-hmm. this. What other kind of genres do you see at play in here besides just fantasy and young adult? It feels like a myth, which I would say is different from fantasy. Um it just it just feels old, you know, the way she says things and the way she's and as, as someone who's a very big Brandon Sanderson fan, I've become very aware of world building and how you set up the rules of your world. And she almost never sets up the rules ahead of time. She always justifies them after the fact. But afterwards, <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, like yeah. like when Ged's fl- Ged turns into a hawk and he's flying away from the creatures, he's like, he flew over the sea because you know the old the the old creatures like the creatures of the old world are bound to an island and cannot follow mm-hmm. the sea. And you're like, oh yeah, I buy that. Okay, you know, so it it has a great um it has a great substance to it and underpinning just that it that just feels very very old in the way that um a lot of stories don't necessarily do these days it's interesting that you say mm-hmm. um that it feels like myth mm-hmm. uh i mean this is this is like a treatise right. of, <laughs> of Jungian, like of union psychoanalysis sure. right and facing your facing the shadow like literally facing the shadow and that is yourself <laughs> yes and i mean jung like one of the one of the most important sort of structures that Jung gives us is saying that we all have we have a light side and what he calls the shadow side, which is what Freud would call like your subconscious or your unconscious. And Jung says um, it's dangerous. Your shadow side is dangerous, but it's also your powerful, talented, creative side. And when you turn away from it, then it becomes violent and dangerous. And when you turn towards it then and embrace it then it becomes part of you and you become a like consolidated human and that that's like the job of humans is to become balanced and to like turn towards the shadow and then embrace the shadow and it's like this is exactly what's happening (laughs) and and then joseph campbell is a student of carl jung and he gives us like the hero's journey cycle but it's based on like that underpinning and so it's not surprising that it feels sort of mythic like that mm-hmm. because <laughs> yeah and, and also going along with mythic it makes me think of the odyssey like the way he goes from island to island but mm-hmm. each yes. island has its own world like mm-hmm. it, its own culture that gets explained with the way the language the dress the customs mm-hmm. are different on each one and and even the magic is different in different islands they say like yeah the spells that work on this island actually don't work as well on that island right so. Yeah, and I loved that aspect of the world building, um, which I agree with what you said about the magic. Like, the, the rules of the magic are kind of, once the magic happens, sometimes she'll explain mm-hmm. <laughs> why, what it's happened. Kind of, it's a little bit hand-wavy sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's yeah. certainly not Sanderson. Like No. Yeah, or uh, Patrick Rothfuss. Like, yeah. Yes. Though, Kvothe and Ged have a lot in common, but Patrick Rothfuss builds very strict magic rules in yeah. Name of the Wind as to what can and can't be done. And this doesn't spend any time on that. It spends time on the story and the characters and the world. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like Rathfuss, like, really liked this book. I mean, <laughs> he certainly really liked this book. But it's, 
It's almost like he, like he took on a challenge mm-hmm. to say, I like this system of magic, but I want to explain it. Yeah. It also seems to go back to these very kind of elemental forces of like light and dark and balance. And so as long as you can kind of justify it with that sort of underpinning, I think that's why it feels very satisfying. Because it's just you go through and say like, why is this satisfying? You know, this is hand wavy and no one explains it. And there's like a spirit and a stone and, you know, like, and it's cold. And, you know, but it's like, okay, yeah, balance and light and darkness. And and also um, it's, it's, it's such a trope to to use old language to do magic, right? You've got like the, the fake Latin and Harry Potter and, and various kinds of things. Um, and, and, you know, even Tolkien's sort of old English kind of drawing on that. And in this book, the reason is that the old language is the language that, you know, their creator used to create the world. And that's why everything still has a name in the old language is because like, that's the magic he originally used. And that's one of the best justifications for that I've ever heard other than like, Latin sounds cool, you know, and so magic for a long time. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, and or or the the whole idea the the trope of the power of the name, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, which the name of the wind, the whole thing is about right. the true name of of objects, yeah. you know, gives you, and elements gives you power over those things. Yeah. You also see it picked up in, like, um, Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all the names of things. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, this idea of true names is definitely strong in fantasy. <laughs> right, right. But again, I feel like she's one of the earliest people to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, that I, I don't know that early fantasy so well. And she has a really great justification for it. Yeah. Of Like, your true name is who you truly are, and it gives you people power over you, and you can't change shapes or do illusion or whatever, so. Mm. <laughs> one of the things that I really liked um, that she mentioned in the afterward is um, she says, I mean, she recognizes like Tolkien and uh, White and this kind of early fantasy. And she doesn't like, she doesn't totally discard it. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she's obviously drawing from those wells. Um, but she says one of the things that she didn't like about that is that it's about like going to war mm-hmm. and then killing a bunch of nameless things mm-hmm. and then winning and that yeah. good triumphs over evil and she says she just hates that yeah <laughs> and she wanted to do something more more interesting and i i just i love how she she's able to talk about light and darkness and balance and good and evil and it feels it doesn't feel like uh relativistic in the sense that like there is no morality and mm-hmm. there is no right mm-hmm. uh, um but at the same time she's able to tell a very interesting story that's not about killing a bunch of nameless mm-hmm. others it's about finding yourself and and, and the evil that's within you master yes. the evil that's yeah. within you um yeah. when i read one of the without killing it yes right uh, I, I don't, I, I just saw a reference to this, that the one thing she didn't like about the Miyazaki adaptation was that it made the evil external mm-hmm. to the main character. And she's like, the whole theme is that <laughs> yeah. this is, you know, we have to conquer the evil that's within each of yeah. us. Yeah. So going back to the works that she built on, um, like T.H. White and, and Tolkien okay. and, yeah. and, you know, myth and legend, um, one thing it kind of unfortunately has in common with those is that there are very few female characters and most of the women are evil. Mm-hmm. There's like one named female character who's not evil. Um, and it's like, this is a very good book, but it's not the book that addresses that balance in fantasy of, of you know, male characters versus female characters. Um, nor is it the book that addresses the idea of like women doing magic or evil. And apparently one of her later books in the series actually does kind of address it, but it's also not one of the more well-regarded ones in the series. So she kind of like tried to 
patch it up a little bit going on. So, you know, just I, I, this time reading it through, especially I was like, I think, I think I've probably learned about the Bechdel test since I, since I read it last time. And I'm just like, she doesn't have a name, but she's evil. She doesn't have a name, but she's evil. She doesn't have a name, but she's evil. She has a name and she's evil. She has a name. Oh, she's not evil. Okay, good. We have one. Betch's sister is the only one that's, that's good, right? Yeah. Um, And I, I noticed that too. Uh, and I think it's worth noting, like, this is 1968. It's right, still a right. product of its time, and yeah. that was very much the tropes of fantasy yeah. at the time. To so, and I, like, be I. Male dominated. I mean, yeah. we, we did The Hobbit, and is there a female character in The Hobbit? No. I couldn't remember. <laughs> I don't think there is. Uh, I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's interesting. I mean, she, she mentions, I mean, she talks about that mm-hmm. in her own afterward, and she yeah. says she recognized that there were issues, and it's interesting that rather than. Rather than like making a play for gender, mm-hmm. she makes a play for race. Right, and and that's absolutely like that's kind of where she chose to sort of right. put put her eggs in that basket instead of like you know instead of instead of trying to fix everything and right. offend everyone. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's just that in 2017, I cannot talk about this book without yeah. mentioning that. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's interesting to me about the race mm-hmm. is that it's very easy to read this book and not oh, pick yeah. up on that. Yeah. And like I. I I mean, it's it's fascinating to me. I think there's like, there's like, like one people... paragraph that talks about the skin colors and several mm-hmm. other characters, but other than that, it's not yeah. really mentioned that often. Yeah. Well, and even the way that she describes um, Ged, like calling him Copper Brown, right. like you can imagine him as being from Huntington Beach or something, right? right? <laughs> right. And being Copper Brown, like yeah. Um, anyway, I just it's it's interesting that I mean. <laughs> It's kind of it's. It reminds me of um, when I was in high school. There was this one time you won't remember this because nobody does. Uh, my <laughs> my parents went out of town, and I thought I was gonna be really rebellious, and so I grew my sideburns out long. And uh, <laughs> how long were they out of town for, Dad? Like a week or something. How- and I grew my sideburns out, and not one single person <laughs> recognized that my sideburns were long. And I went home, and I was like. This is stupid. I'm never doing that again. And I shaved them shorter. And uh, and I wonder if that's how she felt. Like, after she did this so, thing, yeah. she's like, I'm going to make all of my characters yeah. multiracial, and the bad guys are going to be the white guys, and the good right. guys are all going to be colored. And then nobody recognizes it, and they, like, write, draw pictures for her story, and everybody's white. And yeah. she's like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> nobody gets it, you know? And I just think it's fascinating that... Um, the, the bias that we have as yeah. readers, that we read something and we just assume that this is yeah. the way that it is, and you can read the whole entire story, and then somebody at the end goes, hey, did you notice? And you go, oh my gosh, I didn't. Well, yeah. it, it still happens there. I mean, for one, we can point to the adaptations. Like, one of the issues yeah. with the adaptations is they cast a lot of white actors. Um, but even when uh, Hunger Games came out, and there was the famous uproar when the movie came out, and some people on Twitter were upset that Rue was black mm-hmm. and, they, and they're like what happened to the cute beautiful white girl which is such a loaded problematic racial statement to say yeah. that that was in the book and i'm so traumatized by her death it's kind of like well why rue was adorable the actress right. that played yeah. rue in the movie was perfect but also in the book rue was black right yeah. uh and so i saw some uh, like responses to that were like i'm not i don't know if i should be concerned about the blatant racism of the these people or the lack of reading comprehension of these people that it's not, it's not coming through that they're characters of color in this yeah. book I will say, you know, we as, um, because I certainly didn't pick on it up on it the first time I read it. Um, although it does kind of come up in the sequel, but, um, I think as, as a white reader, when books, most characters resemble you in that way, it's probably easier to miss than if you are, um, 
you know, a, a black reader, a reader of color, I suspect that they actually would have picked up on it because it would have been like, hey, wait a minute, this is like the first time, whereas other people are like, oh, okay, whatever, you know, you kind of read through it. Um, it's like I have a, I have a, um, I have an acquaintance who read a book that I really loved that was a science fiction story, and the whole time through he thought the main character was male because the main character was this like space alien, whatever, that, you know, mm. wasn't really clear. And so, and he wrote this review of it, it was really great, and I'm like, she was female. It was this huge deal. And so for me, that like mm -hmm. really stood out that I definitely noticed this, you know, this kind of situation because I, I felt like it had this like huge bearing on the story. And then for him, it just, you know, straight over his head, especially because it didn't, um, it didn't obviously affect the story in the way that it would have if it had been like a human character. So as, as white male readers, it's easy for us to just default to assume right. that everything we're reading is going to have a white male protagonist, which statistically odds are we're going to have a book <laughs> or, with a white male protagonist. You know, or if it's just kind of mentioned in passing or something. That like, we might brush over right, it, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I can imagine being a writer in 1968 and thinking, okay, I see this pattern and I want to buck the pattern, but I also want to be published. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, she, she, I can imagine her sitting down and saying, okay, am I going to go with female characters or am I going to go with characters of color? And mm -hmm. then deciding for whatever reason she wants to say, I'm going to go with characters of color. Um, I just feel like, I mean, she's created this beautiful world that doesn't feel like, like our world. And I feel like she could have done something where she says, and everybody, all the women were wearing burkas. Or, and all the men had turbans on their head or, you know, mm -hmm. like something to say, yeah. this is like, I'm marking this as, as a different thing. But you just go from like village to village right. and there's different, there's differences in the magic system. There's differences in the languages, but, but you don't get enough of the languages to say, oh, that looks like it comes from yeah. Africa yeah, or that right. come, looks like it comes from. And so I, I think it's easy, especially if you're reading it like really fast, like I was today, yes. just, just like blowing through it and skimming over descriptions of things. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not like you, like, oh, you totally missed it. It was so obvious from the very beginning. Right. I was, like, indexing this at every point, this racial difference. Right. She just sort of describes the characters and then moves on and lets them be in the story, which I think is cool. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that because this is so far removed from our world, the, the racial differences do not have the same weight that they do in our world, right? Because they're, you know, we don't know what the history is of the interaction of these different races. We don't know. I mean, we know that we know that the Kargat Empire occasionally like invades people, but we don't know. And they who want else to stay is, away from it, right? And but we don't know who else has invaded who else, and you know, and there seem to be other kind of divisions. And so, in some ways, that gives her a lot more freedom to to kind of play with the races and make people kind of what she wants. Because, it, like you said, I, I agree that it doesn't really have a strong bearing on the story. I just think that like when you are so unused to seeing your self representation, like you you will kind of yeah. pick up on it. Um, I just yes. want to say, like, I think she does a great job of what you guys are describing, of, like, having this race that's there, it's present, but it's not, like, driving these characters. Mm -hmm. And there's no real-world analogs because this is so far removed. But at the same time, I've read, and there's been controversies about other fantasy stories that still use characters of other race, but they they lean into, intentionally or not, real-world prejudices and right. issues and biases. Star Wars. This completely avoids all that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and it also, I mean... It also avoids the issue of, like, how do you describe appearance and fiction that people are always running into? You know, Ged doesn't see his reflection in the pool every three chapters and, you know, see his straight hair and his copper brown skin. Like, like it would it would in some ways be kind of clunky if right. she kept bringing it up other than, you know, occasionally when it sort of has a bearing on the story. 
I mean, even Tolkien, like, he, he introduces one non-white race, basically, and they're basically savages, right? They come in for the final battle. <laughs> right. you, yes. Tolkien, you're leaning into some very problematic right. racial right. stereotypes. Even though this is a, you know, a fantasy world, it's not our world, um, yeah. we're still seeing his era's context and some of the issues yes. <laughs> uh, quite present in this other fantasy world. And we don't see that in A Wizard of Rosie. Yeah. Uh, if, I mean, if, if people are interested in this um, this idea of, like, cognitive bias and um, just assuming that you see something that mm-hmm. you actually don't see, uh, Jerome Bruner is a really good um, writer who writes about this kind of, these kinds of things and, and associates sort of sociological and anthropological studies with fiction. Mm-hmm. But he talks about, like, this famous study where um, they'll sit somebody in front of a in front of a screen and show playing cards mm-hmm. and they'll see, you know, it's like queen of hearts, three of diamonds, and they'll go through and then they'll say, did you notice anything? And they said, no. And they'll say the, you know, the three of hearts is black mm-hmm. and they're like, wait, what? And they'll even go th- like, go through it again yeah. and people won't pick it up on the second time. And then people will even justify in their heads and they'll say, like, <laughs> it's got sort of a reddish tint to it. Like, <laughs> But just how, like, how it's hardwired in our brain to see the world in a certain way. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that we're, like, horrible people. Mm-hmm. But it's something that we can certainly, like, be aware of. Right. And being aware of it, you know, I think it can make you a better reader, certainly. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking also of Star Wars. And, <laughs> like, if you want to see sort of the the opposite of what we've talked about, like, in the, in the trilogy, in, in the prequels especially, right? Mm-hmm. You have, like... Asian races that are really interested in, I don't know, <laughs> trade and money. And, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like, and then and they, they're the business, they're the business guild, but they have really Asian sounding accents. Yes. Right. And the, and like the Jewish, yeah. uh, dealer in, I oh. mean, it's just, it's all like, mm-hmm. oh man. And the laid back Caribbean alien. And yes. The, yes. Yeah. The prequels were not a high that. point for <laughs> racial sensitivity as far as analogs and science fiction go. Yes. <laughs> but, but, but it, it highlights kind of the difficulty of, of doing this thing where you're like, I want, I want to include, you know, like different races and people of different colors. And I want people to know that I'm doing that. Right. Like, I don't want the same thing to happen to me that happened with diversity, which is nobody notices. Right. right? I want people (laughs) to notice this cool thing that I'm doing, but how do you do that without leaning into stereotypes and, well, you certainly don't do what George Lucas did. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is this is something I've even noticed in action movies, where for a long time, if you look at like James Bond films or whatever, you had these, you know, the female characters were these like super hot, and they were only there to be seduced by James Bond, right. and they got a lot of criticism. And so the later ones, they're like scientists who are super hot and are only there to be, you know, seduced by James Bond. It's like, okay, you're, yeah, like I can you're see what's kind going of on here. To address <laughs> it, a half step. <laughs> but you know, it's still like it's it's still like you know now the perfect woman is no longer like the bikini model. She's the scientist slash bikini model. It's like yeah. that's even more unreachable. <laughs> that is not helpful. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in the early ones, it was like the villain's arm candy became James Bond's arm, right. arm candy, and that was it. Like right. the only role of the female was to be the arm candy. Yeah, uh, and now she's a knowledgeable. You know, she ha- she has a bit of the MacGuffin <laughs> that James Bond. Yes, <laughs> arm know, candy I mean, with a PhD. <laughs> I think it's interesting, um, like when we talked about American Born Chinese mm-hmm. and how um, an Asian author is able to talk about his own race in a way and then present like stereotypical things that as maybe 
slightly more sensitive readers were mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but like, I think sometimes it's easier for someone to talk about their own race mm-hmm. and their own culture. And then if they choose to lean on stereotypes, like, that feels different right. than than doing this big, like, look at me, I'm so interracial. And, yeah. well, I mean, or they're even, really or hard. they're even looking at stereotypes, but doing like a second and a third pass to say like, well, what does it, you know, like, like kind of a meta meta analysis yes. of a stereotype or something like kind of say like, okay, it's true to this extent, but what about that extent? And then, you know, um, I, I should say the, the TV show master of none, which we might have to do sometime if we can find a clean That's enough the, episode. Aziz Ansari. Yeah. Yeah. Does, does some really interesting things with looking at, um, you know, so he's Indian American and then he's, there's a character who's, um, I think Taiwanese American and, and just does a really fun, fun job of like not shying away from those really, um, those really sensitive racial issues, but like looking at them with the nuance of someone who has lived in this community and has been thinking about this all his life instead of the like, you know, one note kind of, um, right. um, you know, portrayal that someone outside the community would be like, you know, kind of describe. So I want to talk about Ged a little right. bit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so interesting to me that he gets one of the harshest humblings of a protagonist that I can remember us talking about in 130 plus episodes where he comes to the wizarding school. He's not the chosen one like Harry Potter, but he is superior to his classmates. Like he's picking up everything faster. He's advancing at a quicker rate than everyone who came in with him. Uh, His teachers are recognizing this and giving him special lessons. And then he goes and because of his arrogance and his anger at, um, who's the, what's the jerk's name? Jasper. Jasper. Mm -hmm. Great name for a jerk. I I was just going to say that. (laughs) Uh, Sorry if any of you are named Jasper. <laughs> yes, I apologize. Not you. <laughs> Just other this, Jasper. Yes. Uh, he goes and he does this magic spell that is beyond the level he should be performing at. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really know what he's doing, but he knows it's going to be impressive. So he does it and it releases this demon. And basically, the rest of the book is him making up for this big screw up. Whereas, like in Harry Potter, Harry Potter goes and breaks the rules, and then Dumbledore pats him on the head and says, "You're a good boy, Harry." Yeah. <laughs> and then Harry carries on yeah. as though there are no consequences for his rule breaking. And it's not just that it defines like the his running from the the shadow, and then the, his deciding to hunt the shadow defines the rest of the narrative. But as a character, he's so different before and after this moment, and yes. it's not a quick fix to say, "Oh, I learned my lesson. Now I'm going to be more humble." Like, he's broken for a good while. It takes a lot of time for him to be able to even, like, speak the names of spells mm-hmm. and move his hands. It's there's it's kind of a um, kind of Doctor Strange element to this where he's got, the like, the shaky hands and the scarring. Mm-hmm. And he, he stutters some. And he stutters when he talks. Uh, yeah, I, it's... Um, but later amazing. on, which I thought was so interesting, uh, Vetch's little brother, we, he has a younger brother and sister that we mm-hmm. don't get into. Um, you know, Ged is... is ashamed of his scars, not because they disfigure his face, but because they represent his pride in this, you know, this terrible his thing shame. that he did. Yeah. But his, but Vetch's younger brother is like, those are the scars of a hero. And he's like so jealous and is just, and, and it got me thinking about, um, you know, when someone, some of the, some of the, um, best qualities that you might have as a person, you probably gain through some of the most difficult experiences of your life. And and then, like, experiences you would not wish on your worst enemy, let alone, you know, a good friend. And, and then someone might say, oh, so, you know, I admire your X, Y, or Z. I wish I had that. And you're kind of like, mm, I don't know if you do wish <laughs> yeah. that you had that because I don't know any way to, you know, the way I got that was rather painful and I don't think you want to go through that. And so that, um, you know, I, I think maybe in some ways – 
Jasper Jacob brother is, is kind of bordering on hero worship, but I think in some ways he's right. You know, this is the mark of someone who has made a really big mistake and is spending the rest of his, you know, his life trying to fix it. Um, and that's kind of interesting. And, and he does become this very good, um, you know, thoughtful, wise person. But at the same time, he's, he's really scared that it's not going to be enough. Everything he tries is still not going to be good enough to, to defeat this. Reminds me of the Alex Ross Batman mm-hmm. painting with this, with the scars. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very famous painting if you're a comic book fan. Alex Ross's photorealistic painting. Oh, I think I have seen this. Yeah. So it's this beautiful painting of Batman, and he has his he shirt off. He just pulled off his shirt, and he's hanging up his cowl. Right. Mm-hmm. And you see all the scars on his back. And um, and also, there's a really good um, uh, Catalan sort of novel, like proto-novel, chivalric romance called Tiran LeBlanc. And there's a, there's a really... Um, great scene in that where a woman sees Tiran with his shirt off and mm-hmm. she's like holy cow this guy's amazing and not because he has a perfect body but because his body is so scarred yeah and she recognizes what 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 he's done to sort of protect the kingdom and and what he sacrificed and see so, also the f- first season of arrow yes <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> for, the, for right. the more fan service eye candy version of that <laughs> right yeah well it kind of is, i mean it kind of it certainly yeah. isn't tiran leblanc which is i'm um, you know like they don't shy away from right sexual themes in, in that <laughs> um and but and not in in this novel i mean it's yeah. not that's it's not that mm-hmm. but this idea that these scars that i carry are um, sort of witness to the deeds right. that I've done. Uh, and normally we associate that with heroic deeds, as uh, Vetch's brother does. Mm-hmm. Um, but interesting that, that uh, Ged associates that with his shameful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what I quite like is that so often in fantasy novels, we see those moments where our, our heroes getting a little arrogant and they get humbled at the end of one chapter and then they've learned their lesson mm-hmm. from then on out. And this yeah. is the entire book is correcting that and regaining... Some of the confidence. He's not going to be the same even after he's, you know, resolved his issues with the shadow. I tried to go into this book just totally blind because mm-hmm. I like to do that. Yeah. Um, and but somehow I caught myself reading the back of the book, and it said something like, "What our what our brief synopsis was: yeah. this wizard, and he is young and arrogant, and he releases something bad, and then he has to go and like save something." Anyway, the vision that I had in my mind was that he like released the satanic hordes and then he goes and like battles the satanic hordes and defeats them and um i was surprised by the intimacy of this novel Mm -hmm. and that it really is just him and his shadow Mm -hmm. and he gets his one companion at the very end who's like i i just kind of want to see it yeah (laughs) right and isn't Vetch great he's so i I especially like that he's friends with both jasper and with Mm ged because you have the you know you have like the harry potter sort of like battle lines drawn of you know nobody no one good is friends with with draco but um but Vetch is just so easygoing Mm -hmm. and he's you know and yeah he's already friends with jasper but like there's no reason he can't be friends with ged too and neither the mind that he's friends he just seems like this very genuine um someone who just has no ego and and is willing to sail with his friend to the end of the world just to help him out. Just to be there. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. he even says, like, this is your deal. I mean, it's your shadow. Yeah. And you're going to have to... I And uh, Ged says, you can't help me. And mm-hmm. he says, I, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if you die, I'll be able to go back and tell everybody, watch out because there's a, there's a shadow demon monster. 
And if you win, I'd like to go back and sing the song.、Mm-hmm. But mostly, I just kind of want to be there with you. Yeah. And I thought that Gen was going to, no, I have to do this alone.、They're, okay, fine. <laughs> But like, they end up going together.、Right. And、right. it's just,、uh, it's like, So beautiful. I just,、yeah. man. Well, and even, and even after he earns his staff at Roke, he goes back to his hometown. You know, he's like the local boy, made、yeah. goods, back from Roke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like、um, he, just, he just wants to help people out. And, you know, he was good enough to go to the school in the first place. And then he goes back. And、um, yeah, he's just, he's just kind of chill.、Um, one other thing that I felt was really interesting as far as working within the genre of fantasy is when he goes to fight the dragon. And I was like, oh. There's gonna be a dragon fight. This is, here we go. <laughs> yeah. And yet, it's not that at all. He and the dragon have a conversation. Like, some of the baby dragons come after him, and it's like one sentence. Like, I dismissed that baby dragon,、right. and it drowned in the ocean.、Right. Like, really? That, okay. Yes. And another baby dragon does the exact same thing, and he's like, I did the same thing. <laughs> like, I froze the baby dragon, it fell in the ocean, can't swim. I beat two, two dragons now. You know, and, and he does that for several. And then finally, the, the, Father dragon, this giant, is like big as a, a tower. Like he thinks it's a tower on the island, but it's really the dragon. It turns his head, and then they have a long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, yeah the dragon agrees never to go bother the, the village. It's not boring. It's not boring at all. It is so tension filled.、Um, so it's excellent writing, but it is not the fantasy action that I've come to expect within the genre at all. Right. The, I thought the best like action scenes were scenes of flight.、Mm-hmm. Um, like when he's. What's he doing? Oh, when he's chasing the shadow.、Mm-hmm. And it's like over the sea, and he's, fi- he's using all of his magic to keep his boat together. Right. And his sail filled with magical winds, and they're just chasing, chasing, chasing. I'm like, I cannot put this book down. It's so good. And、yeah. they're just chasing each other. And then the other one is when he's getting chased back, and he's a falcon.、Mm-hmm. And、um, he turns himself into a peregrine falcon. It's the fastest thing that he can think of because he's being chased by like, the demonic hordes of this.、Yeah. Evil castle. And and he goes back to Ogeon, and I love that. Oh, okay. Yes. This is the other scene that I had to. I love that scene. <laughs> It is my favorite scene. Him and Ogeon, which it's got to be a fourth. Or, I, mean, I mean, no, like a, like a, a twelfth of the novel is interactions、oh, yeah. of him and Ogeon. If that.、Yeah. Like, it's such a small percentage of the novel. So beautiful. It is amazingly well written. The, the master student relationship.、Mm-hmm. Um, like, so when we first meet. Ogeon, he gives him his name and gets like, this, this is not the training I expected. <laughs> and he's bored, he's arrogant, he's like, I can do better than what Ogeon's teaching me. And he's like, I got the chance to go to the school. And Ogeon says, fine. <laughs> If that's what you want to do. And Gen says, it is. I don't recommend it,、yeah. but it's your choice. <laughs> and he goes. And then the next time we see Ogeon, it's after he's been at the school, he's made this huge mistake, he's, he's still managed to graduate from the school, he's gone and fought the dragons. He's gone. It's after the tower, right? It's when、mm-hmm. he flies back from the tower. And he's, so he comes back and he's completely humbled. And I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it's essentially I was taught by grandmasters of wizardry, wizardry, but you're still my master. Yes. And, and Ogeon just says, I'm glad you know that. <laughs> <Yeah> . Like, <laughs> it's so perfect of like, you've always been my student.、Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I'm glad you now know that you're, the, you know, that, that even、I'm、when you were there, you were mine. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And my favorite moment of the entire book was after Ogeon teaches him that you can't outrun this, you have to face it. And then he leaves, like they go to bed, and it says, in the morning, Ogeon read in silver writing that was disappearing after the manner of wizard writing, it said, Master, I go to hunt. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And like that. And he gives him his staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His magical staff. Mm-hmm. That phrase, Master Agoda, it's so, because he calls him Master, which I think is really significant mm-hmm. for their relationship. But then also, like, I've learned the lesson. You taught me the lesson. I'm going to hunt. And it's the turn of the book. Whereas before, it's been, he's running, he's running, he's mm-hmm. running from the yes. problem. And now he's going to hunt. Chasing, the chasing, chasing. Yeah. yeah. Like the fugitive, <laughs> as when Richard Kimball calls Deputy Gerard. Yes. And he says, I'm not trying to put together a puzzle. And he says, right. I, I am. am. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and you look I just double checked it. It's Master I Go Hunting. That was the Master I Go book. Hunting. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I thought you were going to say that's the pronunciation. I'm like, no, it's not Master I Go. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're no, saying yeah, that. The exact quote <laughs> is Master I Go Hunting. And yes. that was like, I just felt like the swell of like excitement <laughs> as a, you know, in the book, like, oh, this is going to be good. Okay. And again, it's not building to this grand fight. Mm-mm. It's the chase that Todd was describing, like where he's like holding his ship together with magic so that he can continue the hunt. Yeah. And it's still filled with so much tension. And I think it shows this wonderful style of writing that is so different than what we expect within the genre, where it always builds to like the grand finale mm-hmm. of the, the battle of the five armies or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, one thing I really loved about Ogion, which is why I put it in the summary, is that as Ged's very confused that Ogion does even less magic than the people who've kind of taught him a little bit along the way. Um, to the point of like, you know, there's a spell that will keep you dry if you're in the rain or you make the clouds go away or something. Um, and, and later on when he learns from the, from the wizards at, at the school about balance and stuff, I think Ogion is, you know, so concerned about balance and doing what's right that he doesn't even want to to push a rain cloud away or keep himself dry if it's naturally going to rain. And so he's just sort of like, you know, ha- having learned to do so many things and having done great, and, and there's some references to some really amazing things he did in his past. Um, he is so in tune with the way the world wants to be and so concerned about preserving that, that he just, um, that he just lets it rain where it's going to rain, even though that's, you know, kind of the first spell that you learn. It's sort of like you kind of, Learn so much, then come back around and kind of start from the beginning, but with a different a different attitude. So I think this is kind of tied into that. There's a quote that I wrote down, but I didn't write down who said it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's from Wizard of Mercy, right? It is from Wizard of Mercy. Um, and they're talking, uh, and they're saying, um, as a boy, uh, you think you can do anything. So I thought once. So did we all. And the truth is that as a man's real power grows and his knowledge widens, ever the way he can follow grows um, until at last he chooses nothing uh, but does only and wholly what he must do. So when you're young, you have all of these options and you feel like you can do anything. And as you grow older, um, your options sort of become limited or your agent I don't know like there's, it seems like there's something interesting about agency here right. and as you grow older you become less agentive and you sort of just do the only thing that there is to be done or or you're you're kind of weighing so much or you've already made so many choices because it's not like you don't have choices it's like and, and I've, well, I've each life choice you make is going to limit right. some things from there on out well because right. because I've noticed in in my own life I don't find myself making different choices than I made five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I find myself coming back to the same choices and making them slightly differently. There are things that are like, okay, like 10 years ago, I couldn't do that. Now I can do that. Now I can see like, yeah, this is the right way to go kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of like, it's sort of like your paths get winnowed because you start to realize 
the, you know, what the best path is, or you, or you kind of like refine yourself. And so you, you sort of choose a path that's more refined instead of being like, well, I can do all these things. It's like, no, there is a, there is a best path here and I'm going to take that path consistently. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I thought it was, I just thought it was an interesting thing. We've talked, we talk a lot about agency mm -hmm. and like making choices and how important that is, uh, for characters. I wonder if it's why, one of the reasons why, um, and maybe this is just so obvious that I'm an idiot for even saying it, but one of the reasons why so many heroes in stories are young mm -hmm. is because they still have so many options open to them and that as you grow, you sort of become a product of your decisions mm -hmm. and it's pretty rare for somebody late in life to start really making wildly different decisions than what yeah. they've already made. Maybe because they've established a pattern of decisions, of decision-making that they come back to maybe also just because there just aren't that many options open. Like mm -hmm. I am a Spanish professor. I will not be <laughs> at this, at this stage. Rocket scientist is out of the question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm going to like, I've chosen this path and I'm going to, I'm going to write it to the end. Professional but, football player. <laughs> that was never the card. <laughs> I wanted to, I mean, there were some things that yeah. I wanted to do when I was younger that were important things to me. But that because of choices that I made, I'm like, it's just, it's not really going to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I did not see this discussion going this way, but what you're saying, it makes me think of superhero comic books where they are telling the stories. Because <laughs> a conversation with you never, never goes in that never. direction. <laughs> but but uh, they're having to balance this issue of telling these stories for like Superman for 75 years, or 80, 80 plus years, you know, heading towards 100 years for a lot of these characters. And they like, at what stage of life are these telling, telling these stories? And often they've allowed the characters to progress. To a certain point where Superman was married to Lois Lane for a while. Spider-Man was married to Mary Jane. And both publishers said, no, we've got to reset this to where they're single. And right. there's still, like, romantic options in front of them. And there's always going to be romantic options in front of them. The second we commit to Superman is married to Lois Lane or Spider-Man is married to Mary Jane, we've limited the kinds of stories we can tell. And it's more interesting for us as storytellers to have them in this never-never land of mid-20s to early 30s. Uh, they're at that stage of life. And there's still all these options. Once we lock them into a, a new stage of life, we feel like we've cut off the kinds of stories that we can tell. Well, and maybe that's why, for that reason, I enjoy retellings more than I enjoy serial stories that are never supposed to end. Because I've, you know, encountered, as we mentioned in past episodes, I've encountered maybe a dozen versions of Pride and Prejudice in my time. But they don't keep breaking up Lizzie and Mr. Darcy for kind of <laughs> stupid reasons, you know? Like, like it has a satisfying arc every single time because they're willing to let it end. And so, like, with a retelling, you get to sort of run over that familiar territory over and over and over again to kind of polish it to its, you know, beautiful core story. Whereas, yeah, with comic books, when you have to keep having a new story all the time, mm. you sort of can't let characters progress or have to reset them in Yeah, they ways find ways that... to reset the entire narrative universe sometimes. Yeah. Uh, DC did it in the 80s and then a few years ago where they just said everything's back to ground one, you mm -hmm. know, because right. there's just so much continuity that's built up and so many decisions that are made by the characters that should have ramifications but new writers don't want to deal with them so mm -hmm. they just don't. So instead we're just going to pretend here we're starting new year one Superman. <laughs> Every 10 years they should just say and they lived happily ever after and then start over yeah. again <laughs> instead of retconning things. Yeah, and I think it's getting into what you're saying about choices and, and, you know, why so many stories have the youth protagonists and why whenever Marvel resets things, the characters get younger. They never, like, jump forward 30 years <laughs> and, and see, see what these, these characters are doing. They're going to reset to younger, fresher, newer, uh, and all the opportunities in front of them. You do yeah. see, like, Kingdom Come. Mm -hmm. which but, is... but those are contained miniseries. And, and, and the total exception. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. But they never reset their whole continuity to like where all the all the heroes we know are older and now there's the new generation of heroes. They might tell a miniseries set in that, you know, that kind of world. But yeah. they, they don't reset their whole continuity. They're not yet. above creating new younger teams of superheroes. But... Right, but then those, I mean like the question is like how many Robins has Batman had and Batman still <laughs> remains thirty years old? <laughs> And there have been, you know, four Robins that have outgrown being Robin. Okay. <laughs> I watched the Lego Batman movie on the plane ride back from Chicago, which is perfect because I hadn't seen it, but I also didn't have to pay a ton of attention to it. But the fact that it was like, I have aged phenomenally well, you know, was just amazing. Um, Producer uh, Andrew, jumping yeah, in for the first time like, this episode. Like, specifically with the Batman example, there was a comic book, and news sites, like, brought this one up because it was Batman, and he was putting on a tuxedo, and... Multiple Robins were there in the same frame, and they said, okay, in the current continuity, they've said that superheroes in the DC universe have been around for about five years, which means Batman has been Batmaning for about five years. His son was conceived and is Robin and is 12 years old <laughs> within that five years somehow. He's also had one Robin who aged out into being Nightwing, one Robin who died... And came back to life, and one Robin, who is the current Robin, <laughs> as well as his son, who is also the current Robin, who is 12 years old, somehow conceived in the last five years. And they're like, but that's just the world they're playing in. They wanted it all these ways, and so they're writing stories with all of them. Yeah, that. this is one of the recent ones where DC reset, and they said, okay, this is like, they did year one, and now every superhero's been there for like about five years, and yet Batman had five Robins. Yeah. And, and they said, that's the continuity we're working with. It's a little squishy. Right now, they're doing a, a reset that's trying to make it a little less squishy, but at the same time, it's kind of making a mess, and they've... But, but you know, if they're telling good stories, we don't care. Yeah, I think. And to get back to this, <laughs> <laughs> the reason why they think that they... Whether it's true or not, there exists the impression, obviously, among publishers, possibly among writers, that you can tell the quote-unquote right kind of stories only about people of a certain age. Mm -hmm. And that after that, it, it you either are so limited in your options that the stories become uninteresting, or it's just weird because nobody wants to see old people fall in love. Old people right. being, like, like, over 30. This is my sarcastic voice. <laughs> please, please, listeners, note. Yes. Please please note this is my sarcastic voice. Um, but, uh, you know, it's... Whether it's true or not, mm -hmm. it it seems to be sort of the the way that that people are operating now. Yeah. All right, so Kirsta, we're probably running low, but you wrote a couple questions that I thought were really interesting. One, which I think we've already touched on, how does it feel when others admire you for something of which you are ashamed? So we mm -hmm. talked about that with his scars. Um, but the other one you wrote is, how does it feel when something that used to be easy for you is now hard? Mm -hmm. And we see that with him with magic entirely, right? Like magic was almost second nature for him. Like, he was advancing so quickly, and then he does this one spell, and he comes out of it. And it's not that only that he, like, emotionally knows he's made the horrible mistake. Like, physically, he seems unable to do what he had been doing just days before. And it takes him a good long while to get back to it. And as we said, it doesn't feel like he's ever back to what he was, mm -hmm. was before. Um, and I think that's interesting to see as a character, um, you know, that, that humbling, which makes it easier to like him when he's been humbled a bit from the brash arrogance that he had before, but it also makes it fascinating to see this person who we know used to have greater skills than he does, but he still goes out and he fights dragons. Mm -hmm. He still goes out and chases 
his shadow to the world's and, end. And fights dragons almost as an afterthought. He's like, well, I gotta leave Lotorning because I'm gonna put people in danger. Let's see, why was I sent here in the first place? Right, Dragon of Pendor. Okay, gotta take care of the Dragon of Pendor. <laughs> gotta go back to the Lotorning. Gotta go to the grocery store. You know, it's just like, it's well, almost in passing. And even when he meets his friend, uh, what was his friend's name again? Petchberry? No, uh, Vetch. Vetch. When he meets Vetch, like, at a certain point, he mentions he fought a dragon, and Vetch is like, you told me your life story. You did not mention fighting a dragon once. <laughs> right. Like, he, Vetch gets angry at him. Kind of like, wait, 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 wait. You fought a dragon. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> but it's mostly verbal. <laughs> a lot of verbal jousting. It's um, like the bait club. <laughs> yeah. Little known fact. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's... So interesting to see this character that they don't abandon it. So often in serialized storytelling, you see, like, oh, this life-changing, momentous moment for the character, and then they forget about it, like, mm-hmm. episodes later, like, in a TV show. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's right, that character did have a baby. We kind of forgot <laughs> for the last five episodes or or whatever it may be. Um, and it's satisfying to see this whole character arc that hinges on this and does not abandon, mm-hmm. ab- abandon this at all. Yeah. I... I'm thinking about this. They mention uh, uh, Ged's age is 19 at the end of this. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he seem older to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. From the moment he's scarred on, he feels like a, a, like someone who's been through a lot. <laughs> like someone who has a lot of life experience. Like he's an old soul. Yeah. Interesting he's, in light of the conversation we just had yeah. about age and yeah. how she's able to sort of have it both ways, mm-hmm. right? Because he's not an old soul before. He doesn't feel that way at all. At all. But mm-hmm. from that, that turning point in his life on, it feels like, again, just that phrase, old soul, I think. Like, that's the way the characters are written. That's how I envision. Yeah. Envision I think some of my favorite moments in the novel are him just sort of going from village to village and fixing people's boats and casting spells of protection on them and healing children. There's something or, very messianic in the way that But not healing he... children. That was the brutal part when he didn't... Well, well he doesn't not... heal the one, but yeah. later on, yeah. he, there is something very like, Christological in this sort of um, wandering sage mm-hmm. who just goes around just doing good um, while he's, you know, trying to find his evil shadow self. <laughs> Very briefly, can we discuss why Jasper dislikes Ged so much? Because I don't, like, you could say, oh, he's just a jerk, but I honestly think there's something particular about Ged that really gets under Jasper's skin, and unfortunately it's mutual um, I, I got to wondering, because cause Jasper, and this didn't end up in the summary, but Jasper, so you study for a certain amount of time, and you're a sorcerer, and then you keep studying, and you get your staff, and you're a wizard. And Jasper doesn't stay to get his staff. He doesn't, like, graduate. He, yeah, he, he gets far enough to be a sorcerer, and then, you know, kind of, like, gets a, like a... Like, like a, an associate's degree. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Not to cast dispersions on people with associate's degrees. Um, but and he and then he goes to the to the court of the of the people who came to visit and were so impressed with his like flowering tree. Um, which to me says that he I I think Jasper, he has every advantage in life that you could possibly have in this universe, and yet he is a shadow of the wizard they get is and i think he knows that if this you know if this kid's coming here and is this poor and is this backward and is this you know is this much of an idiot and yet he's been sent to rogue and people think he's a big deal there's nothing i can do to catch up with him or to compete with him and so he just has to you know has to be mean to him for being behind him in school or has to be mean to him for being less powerful which he's not or or just for coming from this humble background because he can't handle the competition like he's been given everything in life on a silver platter and it's still not enough 
and Ged doesn't really do a lot to... Mm-hmm. He does nothing no. to, to mollify <laughs> him. Right, to no. endear yeah. himself he rubbed, to him. He rubs it in his face. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, this movie, Sing Street, that mm-hmm. we either have talked about or will talk I think, about. I think the episode is going to post before this one, but we're actually recording it after. This but there's recording. this great scene in, uh, in in Sing Street where the the bully, in the end, like the, the protagonist goes to the bully and says, hey, would you like to be our friend? Mm-hmm. And he's like, Sure. And then, you know, and uh, a, a different version of Ged mm-hmm. could certainly have that as an option. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? Let's let bygones be bygones. And we're going to be in school for a long time together. And, I'd and or even be... just brush it off. Because, right. I mean, Ged can't be the only person that Jasper has been a jerk to. And yet he seems to be the only one who will take it to the point of, you know, performing illegal spells just to kind of kind of get yeah. back. So, And have you read all of the other Earthsea novels? I've read the first three. Okay. Um, the first two multiple times. I don't really remember what happened in the third. Okay. I was just wondering if Jasper ever, like, do we find out anything about that relationship? Not that I, yeah, not that I recall. Kind of, he leaves and that's it. Yeah. Are the Earthsea novels, yeah. like, Ged's story, or are they just different the stories that of... happen in the world of Earthsea? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons it didn't kind of spoil anything when I read the second one first. So the second one centers on a different character, and then Ged shows up as a supporting character. And the third one, the Ged and the second character are also in that one, which in some ways I think, like, like it makes them stand alone better, but I also think maybe people are not as dedicated to reading them as a series because uh-huh. it's not, you know, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or something where you're following the same characters all the way through. And there are, there are a number of short stories, and I think that maybe some of them revisit Ged or some of the some of these other characters very briefly. Um, but no, as far as I know, Jasper doesn't come back. He just, you know, leaves. Kind of goes and does his thing. Yeah, he, he exits off stage and just goes and does illusions for the Lord and Lady of O. And... Just like every other bully we've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> Going off and doing spells for the Lord and Lady of O. Yes. <laughs> uh, final thoughts? This is a good book. <laughs> yeah. If you've been thinking you need to read an Ursula K. Le Guin novel, like I was, I'd recommend this one. It's the only one I've read. I liked it. You can read it in just a few hours. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in Apple Podcasts, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. But if you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 43 and number 104, in which we discussed the first two Harry Potter novels, or episode number 89, when we talked about Till We Have Faces. Something about this novel really made me yeah. feel like uh, C.S. Lewis's retelling of, uh, all of a sudden I'm forgetting the name. Cupid the, and Psyche. Cupid, Cupid and, and Psyche, Psyche. Uh, myth. I think it's what Kirsten was saying. Like, this this book had a mythic feel about it. Uh, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And Kirsa, you are at BYU Librarian. BYU underscore, underscore Librarian. Underscore librarian. Mm-hmm. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners, and we would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, we would invite you to just go to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Bye-bye.
That's your part of the script. I know, but... I actually have stuff. I have news I want to share with the oh. podcast. Was that okay? Yeah, okay. So let's let's go back to the joke about... Watership Down. Thank you. Watership Down? Yes. There it is. <laughs>